Dr. Carol Francis Talk Radio Show. Let's make life happen together with authors, scientists, researchers, both inside the box and outside the box of understanding so that you can live a life full of your success, curiosity, enjoyment, happiness, and richness of life in every respect. Let's go beyond our limits and let's help others go beyond their limits as well. Welcome. Each and every time I have the amazing honor to interview Dr. Bernie Siegel, I am inundated with individuals that say on their emails to me, oh, yes, let me explain to you how his books helped me. Oh, yes, let me explain to you how he got me through this. Oh, yes, it it, it is amazing to have complete strangers reach out to me to say that Bernie Siegel has changed their life. He also changed mine because he powerfully impacted my ability as a psychologist to know the power of our mind to make a huge difference in every aspect of our life, including our body, and how wonderful, amazing, and unusual at that time to have a medical doctor seriously take our psychology in, in, in mind and then go beyond it and take our spirituality as well in terms of how it impacts our physical body. So I welcome Dr. Bernie Siegel. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you very much for taking Thank time you. out of your very busy day. Well, and let me say we, this. Yeah. Wait, let yeah. me. I got to interrupt you because <laughs> whenever people say to me, oh, thank you, you changed my life. One woman wrote, thank you, you gave me permission to be my authentic self. Hmm. My comment is nobody needs my permission. And Mm -hmm. I can't change your life. Only Mm -hmm. you can change it. Mm -hmm. Now, I can be your coach, but if you don't show up for practice, Mm -hmm. nothing's going to change. And that's the part I found, that, um, yes, people are ready to thank you for this, thank you for that. You can help enlighten them, show them ways. But, again, that's what the coach does. So the coach can be critical of your performance, but it's to improve you as a performer, mm-hmm. and I'd say to people, always understand that your reaction to other people is about what lies within you. Mm-hmm. So if the two of us walk out of a movie and you say, what a wasted time watching mm-hmm. that movie, and I say, really? I thought it was wonderful. Now, what's different? Not the movie, but what we're seeing in it. And yep. I'd say to people, just keep looking for coaches they don't tell you you're miserable. You know, as one woman said, my mother's words were eating away at me, maybe gave me cancer. Say, you're a failure, you embarrass me, and I'm going to dress you in dark clothes so nobody sees you. That's not mm. a coach. But if a parent comes over and says, honey, that's dangerous to do. There's a better way of doing this. Let me show it to you. Then they're not criticizing you. They're teaching you. And they got tell you one story, then maybe I'll stop talking. Um, <laughs> in the hospital, I was discharging a man around the Christmas holidays, and um, he said to me, I'm giving everybody who took care of me a bottle of liquor, but not you. I said, mm. it's no big deal for me. I'm not an alcoholic. You know, I don't need... He, I said, but why am I not getting it? Because you're always angry. I said, well, I don't like what happened to you. I don't like what I had to do to you. So, yeah, I was angry about all those things. He said, yeah, but you took it out on me. And I said, I'm sorry. He said, all right, I'll give you a bottle of liquor. And, (laughs) you know, we both ended up laughing. But what I realized as a doctor was he took the time to improve me, Hmm. see, because he knew I cared, and he made me a better doctor. Now, if I had said to him, oh, baloney, you, you, you know, that's your interpretation, I'm not, then he wouldn't have bothered to talk to me. But when he knew I would listen and learn, and the nurses were the same, they were always telling me how to do something better. And, I, mm-hmm. and they made it clear to me, you listen, so we talk to you. If somebody makes excuses or doesn't listen, we don't bother to talk to them. And I'd say to everybody, don't get upset if somebody criticizes you in a constructive way. Listen and learn. So if you were to um, criticize your profession on the issue of making their patients happy and content and at one and connected to their true self, if you were to criticize your profession, what would you say? 
Well, there was a wonderful sentence I read somewhere. It says, doctors are trained to treat the result, not the cause. Okay. Why is Monday morning a problem for our health, literally? More suicides, heart attacks, and so forth. It's, again, what people are feeling and thinking. And I learned and changed because a patient of mine said to me, this is an exact quote, you're a nice guy, I feel better when I'm in the office with you, but I can't take you home with me, so I need to know how to live between office visits. Hmm. And that's when I started helping people to live and hmm. realize how few of them showed up because they're afraid they'll do it wrong. Uh, hmm. I mean, it's just so sad how most people are brought up. But I also realized that when you changed lives, you affected health. You're changing people's chemistry. And yet doctors would criticize me. I said, what are you, what are you criticizing me? Because one said, you're blaming your patients. I said, what are you talking about? Well, you mm-hmm. ask them what happened in their life. <coughs> I said, yeah, because I want to know what's going on in their life that could have made them vulnerable now. You know, you have twin sisters. One gets breast cancer, the other doesn't. Maybe you ought to talk to the sister who got it and say, what, what are you like? Say, uh, how are you living your life? versus how your sister's living her life and didn't turn on a cancer gene. And those, those, again, that's not about blame, but trying to empower you. I mean, what a lot of patients learned, and somebody said I should write a book with the title. Uh, this is a quote from someone. This is a gentleman who accepted, as many of my patients do, that they have a few months to live. But instead of going home depressed, they say, I'm going to go and enjoy the last few months of my life. And I don't make up any of these stories. You buy a house on the ocean to listen to Bernie's tapes and meditate. Uh, You get a dog and put in a backyard wildlife habitat and laugh more. You go to Colorado to die in the mountains because it's beautiful there. Now, I called Colorado because I wasn't invited to the funeral, which Hmm. I told the family I wanted to be invited to. And the man who I thought had died, this is a year after he left, answered the phone and I <laughs> I said I called to criticize your family and you answered the phone he said yeah it was so beautiful here I forgot to die and people said that should be the title of a book it was so beautiful here I forgot to die because mm-hmm. all the people I mentioned didn't die when they were supposed to and mm-hmm. uh, the woman uh, who got a dog and did all kinds of things wrote to me to say, I didn't die, now I'm so busy, I'm killing myself. Help, where do I go from here? Um, <laughs> you know, the guy who was supposed to die in two months lived over five years with his house on the ocean. Oh, and he took his tie off. He canceled the dress code at work. He was a millionaire. Mm-hmm. He told all his employees, I don't care what you wear. What's the point, if you have two months to live, of dressing up? And since that time, many years ago, I, I can't put a tie on anymore, huh. you know, because every <laughs> time forgotten. I get dressed, I think of him, yeah, and mm-hmm. I leave the tie off, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that the symbol, symbolism of that tie is great because it's, uh, you know, I, in my profession as a psychologist, we had a noose around our necks because we had shifted from the subjective of the Freudian mindset about the psychological well-being into trying to empiricize everything that was going on inside the person. And Mm. with the advent, the wonderful advent of a pharma pharmacology, I'm not being antagonistic or brain research. Those things were great. It made all of us feel like we were charlatans, shamans to be thrown rocks at because we believed in the power of the subjective to impact a human being and we were not really allowed to uh, embrace that without some ridicule and that also transpired into the spiritual consciousness well now we've seen this huge reverse with mindfulness and now i do neurobiofeedback associated to spirituality and mindfulness and we can empiricize the power and somehow it's all evidence-based again and I want to laugh because it was a noose. And Bernie, I have to say, when I read your book oh, yeah. way back then, yeah. I, I just took that necktie off and said, forget this. This is not reality. You were, uh, you, you took the necktie off of a lot of us. Right. But I, I always say, I live by my experience. So if I'm talking about something, it's because it happened. You know, mm-hmm. it's not just what I believe or don't believe. <clears throat> it happened. 
And this is something also that happened that shows you the problem with medicine. I always say it this way. If you ask a plumber to come to your house, you don't tell him to check the wires because he's a plumber. Hmm. And doctors get trained that way too. Yes, I of course. was fascinated by the things I was learning because I had no idea about them from my training. Meaning getting paid, well, I did a drawing for Elizabeth Kubler-Ross of an outdoor scene, and she asked me more questions about my life from this crazy outdoor scene. What are you covering up? Why do you ask that? Well, you put a white crayon on a white piece of paper. You added a layer, you know, and then she asked me about numbers, and I knew they were meaningful in my life. And I couldn't believe what she knew from this you know, spontaneous drawing that meant nothing to me. It's just an outdoor scene from my imagination. But I started asking patients to draw, and it was incredible what I was learning, see, because I didn't know it. I thought I was discovering incredible things. Mm-hmm. I sent it to a medical journal, an article about the drawings. It came back saying, it's interesting, but it's not appropriate for our journal. So I sent it to a psychiatry journal. It came back again. It said, Yes, it's appropriate, but it isn't interesting. We know all this. That's the <laughs> sickness of medicine. Mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. you see, it's like the plumber and the electrician. We have separated your head from your body, your psyche from your soma. And I became what I called a Jungian surgeon. I began to come across things that Jung wrote and others, and I thought, wow, why didn't anybody tell me that? I mean, Jung mm-hmm. diagnosed a brain tumor from a dream. And I read that, and I thought, wow. Well, as a matter of fact, I shaved my head uh, about 40 or 50 years ago when it was totally embarrassing to our family, and everybody at the hospital thought, (laughs) he's got a problem. Um, But guess who taught me what I did? I mean, I just couldn't help but do it, you know? Hmm. I just had to have it shaved. And many, many years later, I'm reading Jung, and it says in this myth, the heroes of the story, his head is shaved. It's to uncover his spirituality. It's what Mm -hmm. monks do. I read that. It was like, oh, thank you, Carl. Wow. You know, I didn't need to shave my head. I needed therapy. Um, So I understood why I had this desire to uncover. The same thing Elizabeth said. What are you covering up? I knew damn well it was all my feelings. And they all had to come out. And uh, and then one other from Maimonides, I loved what he said, because this is like a thousand years ago. He said, if people took as good care of themselves, they do their animals, they'd suffer fewer illnesses. And he said, disease is a loss of health. It's not God punishing you or blaming yourself. It's a loss. And we should help people find what they've lost. Wow. That's what the Bible tells us. And I see this all the time. People who smoke outdoors to protect their cats from the smoke. Yeah. I mean, this is a quote in Cat Fancy magazine. Doug and I now smoke in the yard. We love our cats more than the convenience of smoking indoors. We're not killing our cats anymore. We hope you're not killing yours. Wow. The magazine never referred to the fact that they're killing themselves. It published this so people won't kill their cats. But what about themselves, you know? They need somebody to love them. I call it reparenting. I I was named a CD one day by a suicidal teenager in my office. And I said to her, what are you talking about? I'm a CD. She said, you're my chosen dad. Uh, And I can tell you that there are people alive today because I said, I love you. I'll be your chosen dad. hmm. And boy, they keep writing for years. I mean, we become Hmm. family. And I would say to everybody out there, you can be a therapist. Let somebody know you love them. You don't have to like their behavior, but you love them, and then they change their behavior. And love is a weapon. And you have time for a little story about it? I, I um, do, and, and I'm wondering if you can weave in the uh, the reverse of love, which is anger, which may not be the reverse of love since Anger can be very much about love. So please, I want to hear this story. And yeah, then the story. You know, I, I was saying to people, become a love warrior. Use it as your mm. weapon. People mm. drive you crazy, say, I love you. I mean, I mm. love it 
when somebody gets mad at me for taking a parking space, you know, in the market area, and I lower <laughs> my window and say, I love you, and they always leave. Um, <laughs> you know, because if I'm not going to curse and scream and say, it's my space, I was here before, you know. No, they don't know what to do with I love you. And I've had a lot of people who hear me say it say, thank you. It taught me something. But this oh, young woman with, who had cancer in our support group, she kept saying to me, it makes no difference. I have alcoholic parents. I say I love you. They don't even answer me. They don't say a damn thing. Three mm-hmm. months later, she came into the group with a smile. I said, hey, but Mary, what's the smile about? She said, I was late for work today, so I ran out of the house. My parents are in the street screaming, you forgot something. I said, I got all my stuff. What are you talking about? You didn't say I love you today. Oh, no. And wow. she said, we were crying and hugging each other in the street. Wow. wow. Yeah. And it, it works, believe me. Just mm-hmm. keep saying, I love you. Mm-hmm. I love you. And I, I mean it, you know, not uh, just as a technique uh, to upset somebody, but to really say it. I mean, I had somebody coming towards me. She must have been on drugs or alcohol and, and out of her mind. This was, again, in a public open area on the street. She picked me out and started coming at me, screaming and cursing. I didn't know what the hell was going to happen. And even the people around me were all in a panic. And I said to her, I don't know what's going on in your life, but I want you to know I love you. Mm-hmm. She stopped, turned, went and got in the car and drove away. Wow. And people, one guy came over to me and said, I was about to knock her to the ground. I didn't know what she was going to do to you. Mm. He said, thank you. I, I can't believe what you did and what happened. Mm. But I feel I would feel better. And there are many people, I've learned this from concentration camp people, who when the guards were choosing who goes to the gas chamber, who goes to the work camp, they would say, I love you. And it was a lot harder for the guard to then say, okay, you know, you're going to the gas chamber. No, more likely they were sent to the work camp. Um, mm-hmm. Our mind is incredibly powerful. Another doctor wrote an article who was in the concentration camp with his community. He said, I couldn't believe what happened. He expected all these sick people to go and die because they were told if you can't work, you get a bullet through the head or you're not fed. You starve to death. He said he saw them able to work because mm-hmm. of how the power of their mind how their body then functioned. And so he wrote an article in a medical journal after the war, obviously, and just to share the power of the mind taking over the body, in a sense. And uh, so, again, when you love your life and love your body, things happen. One, It's always hard for me not to tell, because I don't make up any of these stories. I mean, you have polio when you're a child, so you have some body disfiguration, and then she developed uh, Guillain-Barre disease where you become paralyzed in your whole uh, body. And oh, wow. She said she didn't want to die <coughs> hating her body. So she sat naked in front of a mirror and started loving her body. And she literally did it inch by inch. I love my feet. I love my ankles. I love my knee. She just sat there loving and guess what? The disease, you know, went into remission, and she didn't die. And it just blows your mind. And these are people who are not trying not to die, but they're choosing a new way of looking at themselves and loving themselves. Mm-hmm. And their body gets the message, and then it does everything it can for you. And I always add, I don't do this to not die, okay? I do it to enjoy my life. And then when you enjoy your life, your body knows and it tries to keep you here a lot longer. I'm thinking how many times going into a doctor's office, I I have felt invisible. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, if I if I can get out the first five complications of a of a seven point question, I'm lucky because they're running the rush against the 15 minutes and they're already yeah. into their PD. <laughs> PDF about their pharmaceutical, and I, I feel so sorry for them because there's no space for the patient to be human, and I feel so sorry for myself as a patient because I'm so completely invisible. Tell your doctor yeah. you want well, to give them a hug. Yeah. <laughs> for years, I used to say to my patients, 
I need to hug you. Mm-hmm. And then I realized the first two words were, I need. And I began to apologize mm-hmm. to my patients, saying, I realized I'm the one who needed a hug. And they said, mm-hmm. we knew that. That's why we <laughs> hugged you. You don't oh. have to apologize. But, uh, yeah, and find <laughs> out another way that works. Find out your doctor's birthday and bring him or her a special yeah. little gift. Then yeah. they remember you as a person. Yeah. You're mm-hmm. not the disease now. You're the person. Yeah. I, uh, I I think that the teaching of the bedside manner on one level for medical doctors leaves them tremendously vulnerable to when something adverse happens. And how many times does a doctor have to get some depersonalization, some distance, so as to not be completely vexed every time something bad happens? I mean, it is well, a, I, a I burdensome task. Yeah, I don't think you should depersonalize. That's why I say you can say to the let your patient be your doctor and say, you know, I need a hug. It's tough taking care of this. I remember walking into a room. I did a lot of children's surgery of a dying child, and the parents were sleeping in the crib with the child. Wow. There was so much love. I left a note saying, your child is so fortunate and so lucky. And then as I'm walking down the hall, I realized, hey, stupid. The kid is dying, and you're telling the parents they're lucky, and the kid's mm-hmm. lucky. And I ran back to get my note. And the parents had awakened said, we read your note. We agree with you. He is a very fortunate child. And, you know, it's that kind of touching moment where you realize mm-hmm. how powerful that love is and mm-hmm. that it really makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, I've I did a lot of reading of stories to kids in schools mm-hmm. uh, because of their pain. See, I, I realize that as an adult. I grew up with loving parents and grandparents. I didn't know what other kids were going through. Seventy percent of high school students have contemplated suicide. And if there are yeah. any teachers out there, you want to reduce the suicide rate, because I've done this in schools, you tell all the kids, okay, here's your homework. You write a suicide note. You don't put your name on it, but why you ought to commit suicide. Then you write a love note. Why are you worth loving? Bring them in tomorrow. Put them on the desk. And the suicide rate is three, four, five times as high. I mean, the suicide pile as the love pile. Wow. And the kids start talking to each other and get into therapy, and the suicide rate goes down. Mm-hmm. Because so many teachers would say to me, oh, my God, they'll go home and kill themselves tonight. No, they don't. They come back and they realize, I don't have to lie about what's going on in my house anymore. The other right. kids are going through that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one boy I knew, uh, he, 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 he wrote a, a book about his experience with alcoholic parents and sexual abuse. Um, and he called me one day and said, I'm committing suicide. I said, Tony, why do you want to commit suicide? Why don't we kill your parents? I can get you a gun. And he said, no, I never want to be like them. What a, that answer was so powerful. That, you know, he was choosing love. And let me tell you the good thing. I believe in angels. He went down the subway. He said, I'm going to commit suicide by jumping in front of the A train, which is in New York. And um, a couple hours later, the phone rings, and it's Tony. I said, what's going on? The train didn't show up. I didn't know what to do. So... He said, I called the 800 number for suicide prevention that was on the wall of the station. And they came and rescued me and taught me about love. So, you know, that's, I say, when I believe in angels, this damn train doesn't show up. So uh, he doesn't know what to do with himself. But I say again to people, see, if, I mean, these are studies that have been done. A student at University of South Florida told his professor for his master's he wanted to study how emotions affect the body chemistry <clears throat> so and the teacher thought he was nuts um, and I've had teachers at Yale near where I practice surgery the same thing with studies that were done as their thesis you know when they in graduate school where they'd come up with the fact that people in our support group lived longer better lives than others and the professor said this can't be true I mean, it's it's just nuts when their minds are yeah. so closed. But anyway, yeah. this young man was able to get a male and female actors 
and he gave them a comedy script and a murder script where the man kills the woman's husband. And then they interact. He gave them a script to read and drew their blood while they're acting. While they're in the comedy, immune function goes up, stress hormone levels go down. While they're in the tragedy, the stress hormone levels went up and the immune function goes down. Mm-hmm. And that's why I learned to say to people, what's happening in your life? You know, if they said a loved one dies, I lost my job, I had to move, I had to, yeah, there's a reason you become vulnerable and need to take care of yourself and ask for help. See, again, the psychiatrist, one of them, um, came up with a list called Immune Competent Personality. Uh, he was studying people with AIDS when the epidemic first broke out. And he realized he could predict who's going to be a long-term survivor based on their personalities, mm. you see. But we're not taught to talk to people that way. We're taught mm. to ask, what's your chief complaint? Mm-hmm. You know, And then you tell the doctor what's bothering you. But we need to look beyond that into their lives and what gives them meaning and their ability to express feelings, relationships. Yeah, a study in Australia, you have a heart attack. You go home to a house with a dog, 6% of the people had died after 12 months. If there was no dog in the house, 24% had died. And it's no different with marriage. You know, we're married people have a relationship. They will survive longer than somebody who goes home and is living alone and doesn't ask for help. Mm-hmm. So people have to understand. You have a right to ask. And, mm-hmm. and again, in survival behavior, you have the ability to ask. But at the same time, you have the ability to say no. Let me ask you a simple question. Okay. Somebody from your family or a friend calls you up tomorrow and asks you to do them a favor. Due to your schedule, you don't want to help them. What do you tell them? Well, sometimes yes, sometimes no. That's not the right answer. Oh, (laughs) I I mean, I have to. The right answer is no. No, No. I don't want to. I can't. I'm sorry. Mm. You see, that's a survivor. Because the people and nurses have an enormous problem with this. When Mm. you ask that question at a nursing convention, 95% of the nurses say, oh, I would go and do it. Then what are you saying to yourself? No. (laughs) You know, you're so busy saving everybody and helping everybody, you're forgetting about yourself. (laughs) So learn to say no when you don't want to do something. I always say, let your heart make up your mind. (laughs) I mean, I learned that, you know, when I said I had loving parents, they were therapists before I knew that they were therapists in this sense that, these three things to live by, what I call uh, mottos to live by. And I meet people who say, you didn't ask me what mottos I'm dying by, uh, <laughs> what they heard from their parents. But if I came home from school and said, Mom, I have to make some decisions. What should I do? Do what will make you happy. She never told me what's the best thing to do. Do what will make you happy. And hmm. as a kid, I didn't like that. I wanted help. Do what makes you happy. It was harder to know what made me happy. And the other was, if I came home with problems, God is redirecting you. Something good will come of this. And I can tell you, I know a lot of well-known people, spiritual and therapists, and their mothers and fathers were like that too. If God slams one door further down the corridor, another will be open. You know, they had that kind of messages from their parents. And also that material things were not your Lord, if you know what I mean. You weren't here to accumulate money and big houses and cars and impress everybody. You're here to help people. Yeah, I was. I, I called some contest the other day. You know, they give you a, a phone number. You could win a million dollars. And I love yeah. buying lottery tickets. I mean, I have fun doing that. And um, <clears throat> so I called up and... I answered some questions, and the man said, what will you do if you win the money? I said, I'll make people's lives easier and better. Mm-hmm. He said, wow, nobody has ever said that in all wow. the people he has talked to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My reaction is I'll help a lot of people have better lives. Mm-hmm. Because my father's father died when he was 12 of tuberculosis, leaving an enormous number of kids and a wife with no funds. And Mm. my father said it was one of the best things that happened to him because it taught him what was important about life. 
Now, that amazed me to hear him say that one day. Oh, yes. But, uh, I understood what he was saying, and he was the kindest, gentlest man. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of that is rubbed off on me. And mm-hmm. I love helping people I read about in the newspaper, and mm-hmm. they become friends and family, you know, because if their story touches me and the kind of person they are, I can't help but join in. Reach out. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah. Again, if you don't mind, stories endlessly. See, one of the things in the immune competent personality is that not only can you say no, but that you can ask people for a favor, a friend or family, you Mm. see, giving them permission to say no also. So after I gave this lecture, the phone rings at home, and the student who was in the audience says, you said I can ask for help, so I want you to know I need tuition to go to nursing school. I said, honey, if you had the courage to call me on the phone and ask me to pay your tuition, you're damn right I'm going to do it. And Are so I paid her tuition. <laughs> oh my then gosh. a couple of years go by and the phone rings again. And um, I mean, we stayed in touch, but she said, I graduated. I've got a job. I can pay you back or mm-hmm. we can mm-hmm. start a scholarship for other students. And you know uh. darn well what I voted for. But wow. that's the gift, you know, that now she's reaching out and helping others. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that changes the world. Mm-hmm. And we're all wounded. Don't ever forget that. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody's wounded. So when you go out shopping or doing anything, realize the people around you have their troubles too. And if you want to learn more, put a bandage over your eye or on some part of your body and then go shopping. And watch how many people talk to you about their troubles and want to know what's happening with you. I mean, these things have happened to me uh, in the sense that I was poked in the back by a lady who said, you're the only person in Stop and Shop who hasn't asked me what happened. She had a bandage over her eye. Now, that impressed the hell out of me. Everybody was talking to her because they saw she had a wound. Hmm. And, And don't hide your wounds. Share them. I mean, you'd be amazed at how many people are depressed and on medications, and they just need help, need somebody to share with them, share the wounds. Like we're, like we're crying out for each other. You know, you, you have said, learn how to say no, but all of your examples are how you say yes. <laughs> but if I'm doing it out of love, mm-hmm. that's, that's what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've said no. I always remember hearing my sister say, we're having a happy day and you're not coming. Because I said mm. to her, I don't have the strength and energy to drive two hours to your house and then back mm. again home. So I'm not. But, you know, when I wanted to help and do things, I did them because it was and my could. choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and it made it fun. My wife and I have been in every state in the United States. And it became like a game, you know, we're getting invited to speak and to do things. I said, all right, if it's from a state we've never been in, let's go. So we've been to all 50 states. But it wasn't, oh, boy, you want to go to Alaska? You have to fly to Hawaii. No, it was, oh, boy, here's another state. Now we're getting, you know, and we were enjoying it and the people and Mm -hmm. uh, not seeing it as a burden. So I, I have no problem saying no if I can't manage something. Mm-hmm. So then how does anger fit into this healthy uh, perspective? Because, you know, of late I've been thinking that the power of a, a spiritual warrior is their ability to know when their anger is really an expression of deep passion and love. Um, so that well, the, anger is – go ahead, take it away. <laughs> no, I was going to say there is appropriate anger. I'm always saying this to people. If I'm not treated with respect, I get angry. And there are times people will say to me, you write about love all the time and now you're yelling at me. I said, yeah, I don't like how you're treating me. So I'm angry. And I think we have to understand that. See, if if you think of two twins, one of them lets her parents know when she doesn't like how she's being treated, expresses herself uh you know, makes independent decisions. And the other one is a submissive little girl who tries to make mommy and daddy and happy, uh, happy and never has any anger or expresses any emotions. Who do you think is more likely to develop 
a significant illness, the submissive good little girl, see, not the one who's expressing herself. So it's appropriate at times to be angry. I mean, we had five kids. I, I'm just thinking of one. He was the sweetest kid. So he's in the last room at the end of the hall, and he came up to me at one day, and he said, you don't love me like you do all my siblings. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you have five children. We should all get 20% of your time. I only get 10%. (laughs) Ah. I said to him, I really respected him, see, for speaking up. Because he could have stayed in his bedroom being depressed. They don't love me. They put me at the end of the hall. No, we put you at the end of the hall because I don't worry about what you're doing when the door's shut. I know I can trust you. He said, your brother's driving us out of our mind. So he gets 30%. And he then understood and didn't feel unloved. And I think that's the point we have to make with our kids and everybody else. It's all right to express anger if you're not treated with respect. I'd say also keep a sense of humor. Because the son I mentioned who was driving us insane. See, where was his bedroom? Off the kitchen. (laughs) So that we could watch him all the time. Hmm. Uh, But see, it could be interpreted they love him more. Look where they put him. But one night, when I was trying to convince him to go off to school uh, and get an education, the whole family, we dismantled his bed and hid it. Now, you may say, what kind of parents are they? Hmm. We took his bed, we hid it. And he went into his bedroom, and we're all waiting for a reaction. Nothing happens. He shut the door, perfectly quiet, so we all went to bed. Next morning, he came out and said, thank you, my back feels better now. And we all laughed. See, that's survival behavior. (laughs) I even took that boy to a psychiatrist who said to me, don't bother to bring him here. Because he he sits here for an hour, stares at me, and doesn't say a word. But... Mm -hmm. You know, that he had that strength. He said, he'll survive. Don't worry. That if he could sit here and stare at me and never say a word, it's a rare patient who's capable of doing that. So it saved me a lot of money for the psychiatrist (laughs) to tell me that. But Hmm. it's interesting. Again, each has their way of getting attention and behaving. And I think, again, if I didn't like how they behaved, yeah, I would display anger. Because, again, I was asked by one of our kids, you're getting a divorce. I said, what, what are you talking about? You yell a lot and you're angry. I said, I don't like how you're behaving. I yell and I show my anger. But I love your mother. What are you saying? Why are you asking? He said, oh, the neighbors are getting a divorce. They yelled a lot at each other. Mm-hmm. Those were his mm-hmm. friend's parents. Mm-hmm. And I found that interesting. So in our house, love, anger, laughter, all those things were part of our existence. Um, I'm laughing because my wife was an only child and she would always say your family is so noisy I said Mm. what are you talking about because we were but I didn't know it because everybody made noise to get attention if you came into a room of a big family and you wanted people to know you're here and you need something you made noise and one night she just said wait here I stood in front of the front door and it was a family event, and she opened the door, and the noise that came billowing out of the house was incredible. But that was the style. It didn't mean we don't love you. It meant if we have needs, if we want to get your attention, we're going to raise our voice and make noise. Yeah. And again, it's living in the moment that that is the way of surviving. One of our kids, again, um, I thought he had cancer, See, it's fascinating, too, the mind-body. Imagine your seven-year-old son coming up and saying, I need an X-ray, my leg hurts. I said, what are you talking about, you need an X-ray? Take a hot bath. No, I need an X-ray. We took an X-ray, and he had a bone tumor. Wow. And I assumed he's going to lose his leg in life in the next year. And the day after the X-ray, before his surgery, he came to me at age seven. He was my therapist. Dad, what is it? We're trying to have a nice day. You want us in our room depressed. You're handling this poorly. Let us go out and play. And that 
simple statement taught me so much, you know. Let's have a nice day. Not worry about next year. And he was very lucky. He had a rare benign tumor. But what he said to me that day, I have never forgotten. And if we all work on having a nice day, uh, you'll have a hell of a lot more days than if you get up every day resentful and bitter and look what I have to do. And, uh, yeah. Every day, get up and think, this really works. Think about what you're grateful for. <clears throat> and the first day of the month, pick three things that begin with the letter A. The second day of the month, pick three things that begin with the letter B and go through the month. I always say after 26 days, you can have a few days off. But the next <laughs> month, you can't repeat what you used the month before. And I found it was wonderful because <laughs> I'm laughing because you leave the house thinking, okay, i got to come up with three things today with the letter M that I haven't used before. What are they? Mm-hmm. What am I mm-hmm. grateful for? And I realized, hey, dumbbell, that's what's wonderful. You're struggling to find more things you're grateful for. You see, I mean, you could say a massage, a, you know, a melon. It doesn't matter. But as long as it began with that letter. And I thought, I'm really doing myself a favor. I'm working on what am I grateful for, not what's wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, I need to say a prayer. God, please help me. Um, or the roof is leaking. You know, whatever it is. Um it was just such a wonderful feeling to be grateful and to struggle with being grateful for more things. Okay, I'm ready to throw you a curveball. You ready? <laughs> yep. All right. So you're so good at taking these curveballs. So individuals have abusers, whether it's a sexual harassment or um, someone who beats you up or people who just seem to be evil is evil, and they have those people in their lives. So I'm going to throw the, the curveball is this. Do you think there's such a thing as evil? Boy, is that existential. And secondly, how does one, if you do, how does one manage the reality of evil? Yeah, and I, I, authentically. Go ahead. Did you have more to yeah. say? Yeah, yeah. How does see, a person What I see, evil? this came from a line from John Steinbeck in East of Eden. It explains everything. Hmm. All the headlines we're reading. Why would you drive a car into a crowd? Why would you shoot 100 people? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just insane. Why would you and molest He said, we girls? all experience rejection. With rejection comes a desire for revenge. With revenge, guilt. And there is the story of mankind. Hmm. So you see, when the kid shoots everybody at school and his mother... He's seeking revenge. But if he'd been brought up with what Schweitzer called a reverence for life, that never would happen. And that's something I saw in how we brought our kids up. Because uh, one of my books is called uh, Love, Animals, and Miracles. Mm -hmm. And it's about what I call the Seagull Zoo. We had so many pets, it was just unbelievable what was in our house and in the yard, fenced in and breaking every zoning law, exotic pets, skunks, I mean, all kinds of creatures (laughs) that were injured. Veterinarians brought it to us and everything else. But everybody in the neighborhood knew we did it out of love. So they never complained, never reported us. Um, It was just incredible. And I saw how our kids grew up with a reverence for life. You know, from not swatting an insect to finding a turtle on the street and spending half an hour to find a pond to go into. And that's what we all need. You need to grow up feeling loved, having a reverence for your own life too, so that you're not a drug addict smoking 100 pounds overweight, um, you know, to make up for all the abuse you had as a kid. Um, Yeah, it's to love yourself. And we need to reparent. Teachers, doctors, we're all capable of doing that by letting the people we're working with know I love you. I mean, I know people are alive today because of how nice their teacher was to them in third grade, you know. And I was loved at home, so I don't remember my third grade teacher. They didn't have to say something nice to me. I felt loved. 
so I could be myself and maybe cause them more trouble by <laughs> my behavior. But, you know, we got along. And uh, that's what we all need. As I said, reparent people. Let them know you love them. You don't have to like, but love. And that can make all the difference. But all the headlines that we're reading are coming from people who did not grow up with love and with a reverence for life. If every kid had a pet, there'd be a hell of a lot of fewer mass murders, believe me. Okay, so here let's take a different uh, detour in life, which is actually kind of the path that we all take, which is toward death. So not actually a detour. And with the resuscitation medicine field that has now accumulated so many near-death experiences to indicate that death is not something necessarily to dread, um, and you're dealing with people who are on the verge of dying or they're, you're facing them in your office and just it's pets that you talk about in your books. and Yeah, I mean, dying, dying can be your, your therapy. It's a wonderful, I love William Saroyan, the author. I suggest everybody read a book, The Human Comedy, he wrote decades ago. It's all about life. But in one of his short stories, a young man is dying. You know, he's homeless, starving. He lies down and dies. And the last three words in the book, in the story are, he becomes dreamless, unalive, perfect. When you die, you will become perfect again because you're free of your body. Um, Blind people, born blind, who have a near-death experience, see when they are out of their bodies. Um, I don't have time to share a lot of stories, but my mother was very sick and wasn't supposed to become pregnant, and my birth was extremely traumatic because she couldn't survive a cesarean section. And she told me that my grandmother poured oil all over me and pushed everything back where it belonged three, four, five times a day. Because I had heard and saw from old family albums that I was hidden so people wouldn't see me and get upset by what had happened to me. So I said, why am I not a drug addict or an alcoholic? Nobody's touching me and you're hiding me behind the house. She said, oh, my mother, you know, massaged you and pushed everything back where it belonged. Fifty years later, for the first time in my life, I was massaged by a woman therapist. I'd had massages by men, but never by the soft, gentle hands of a woman. I knew what was happening because I had a a shaved head like a baby and she was massaging it and I went into a trance. Mm -hmm. I became a baby again. I opened my eyes feeling so blissful and the room was filled with people. I mean, literally 15, 20 people in the room. I said, what the hell is going on here? And the husband of the therapist was also a therapist said to me, We thought you had a heart attack or a stroke. You were gone. We couldn't communicate with you. I said, yes, I know. I became an infant again. So all those memories are stored in our bodies, too. And when I was four years old, I almost choked to death on a toy I took apart, imitating some carpenters who were working in our house who had put nails in their mouth. And I left my body. And almost every kid who has that experience chooses to be dead. I mean, that may sound crazy, but mm-hmm. I didn't want to go back. This was, you know, I mean, I laughed because if you're four years old and you leave your body and you, you know, you're floating around, you're no longer choking, everything's wonderful. Hey, who wants to go back? And uh, anyway, I did. The The boy on the bed vomited and the pieces came loose and, He started breathing again, and I yelled, who did that? Because I'm back in the body again. And Mm. it was a very spiritual feeling that uh, maybe there is a God who decides, and it's not me. But I've had all these things happen, a near-death experience. So I know it's okay. The death is, I always call it, when we have a graduation, it's called a commencement. Death is a commencement. Consciousness exists without the body that i know and part of who we are in this life is based upon the consciousness 
that comes with us from other people's lives, what we call past lives. I don't think necessarily our lives, but the experience of people who have lived before us. And I had that happen, too, when somebody said to me over the telephone, why are you living this life? Why are you so busy? Why are you living this life? I went into a trance. And I said to her, wow, maybe that's why I'm a surgeon. I see myself with a sword in my hand, killing people. And I had the most moving, dramatic experience I've ever had in my life of what had happened. And I sought therapy because I cried for hours. And I'll tell you what the key was, because I have always questioned faith, you know, like Abraham, Jesus. Um, You know, if God says, I want you to give up the life of your son, why doesn't Abraham say, excuse me, why don't you take my life and leave the kid alone, you know? Mm -hmm. Or Jesus saying, I'm going to jump off the cross so everybody really knows what I'm capable of and pays attention to me. But they had faith in their Lord. And so when I was asked to kill, I would argue with the Lord. Say, hey, there's another. Why don't you do it this way? Why did you? And that was something that I had to learn, to have the right Lord and faith. And uh, and the reason this came up was when I was talking to my Jungian therapist friend. Um, he said, Bernie, now you hear what you're saying? I said, what do you mean? He said, you keep saying my Lord. I said, yeah, the Lord of the castle. He said, no, Bernie. It's your Lord. You need to go home and relive this. And when I went home and relived it, I realized if I had said yes, I would not have had to do all these destructive things. You see, because my Lord would have known, you have faith in me, I can ask you to do things and trust that you will do them uh, and not violent things and killing people, but a way that we can resolve this problem without death and uh it and i think every one of us has that and the other i've seen in my parents my friends um in-laws and recently my wife they have all died without any problems dying mm-hmm. i mean my father-in-law 97 said i'm not having dinner tonight no pills no vitamins um, he died in his sleep that night. My mother-in-law I used to tease her by having lunch with her at noon. She was also in her 90s. And um, so she died at 11 in the morning to avoid having lunch with me. But she came and said goodbye to me at 11. Now, oh, wow. when I say that, I, I was in another facility, and I felt her come into the room and say goodbye, Varney. And so I ran down to the nursing home she was in, and they said, oh, you've heard. I said, I know. I didn't hear. I know. And um, my my father said, I need to get out of here. And we had a wonderful party. And he died laughing with stories my mother was telling. Um, and, and again, the timing. I knew my mother wouldn't die with any of her children in the room. So I would periodically step out of the room. And, of course, she died when I went out of the room because she's busy being a good mother and not upsetting her children. And kids will do that too. I always tell the parents, if you go to get lunch in the hospital cafeteria and you come back fine, your child died, that is not your fault. Your child is doing you a favor. And my mm-hmm. wife died in her sleep. I didn't even mm-hmm. know she had died. And wow. so I came to get her up in the morning, um, mm-hmm. peaceful and beautiful. Um mm-hmm. And again, it's it's when death is not the failure, if you know what I mean. Uh, it's okay. You're tired of your body. Stop. Go on. And spiritually, as I said, the consciousness is still there. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, I, I had a patient, and she's still somewhat I see, um, who came in one day and said, I know you're not a normal doctor. So I asked all the mystics I was meeting with, to have a message for Bernie. And this is what came from Frank. If I know it is this easy, I'd have bought the package a long time ago and not have resisted so much. And I knew who that was. Frank was a doctor friend who had just died. I called his wife. I said, I have a message if you want to hear it. I'm not doing this to upset you. 
She said, fine, what is it? And I started to tell her, and she let out a shriek. I said, what are you shrieking about? I'm trying not to upset you. She said, no, Bernie, you're not upsetting me. That's what Frank said when we'd leave your meetings. I can't buy the package. Well, I'm waiting for a message about my wife. Is she okay? And on Sunday morning, she died on Friday, um, the phone rings, and it's Monica. Bernie got a message from someone with a beautiful voice who's an opera singer about your wife and that everything's all right. Wow. And I said, that's her mother. She was a well-known opera singer. Oh, my goodness. And, I mean, that's the part that blows my mind all the time, that Mm -hmm. Monica comes up with these statements, you know. As a matter of fact, when my mother Mm -hmm. died, she called me the next day. Your folks are together, and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is showing them around. Hmm. Now, Monica doesn't even know I knew Elizabeth. She doesn't know my parents. You know what I mean? They're living in different states and places, but she gets the message. So, yes, we can communicate with those who have died. We can talk to animals. We can talk to those who have died. Um, You have to have a quiet mind. That's the, the theme I learned is the key. And it's symbolically often in stories, the still pond. Campbell talked about a tiger who dies giving birth and the goats raise his baby tiger. Mm-hmm. And he thinks he's a goat until a tiger comes along and says, stupid, come with me, and shows him he's a tiger at a still pond. Mm-hmm. The ugly duckling is a classic, too, because he's thrown out of the house by his mother, mm-hmm. see? But he doesn't say, my mother's a rotten woman, I'm going to get even with her, I'll get a gun and I'll kill her, and I'll... He goes off on his own with a quiet mind and realizes on a still pond, I'm a swan. Yeah, my mother doesn't know what she's talking about. I'm a swan. And when we have that quiet mind, then I always say we see the truth. And I've learned from animal intuitives and psychics and others, that when I can quiet my mind, amazing things happen. You know, the choices you make, uh, it's no, well, Elizabeth used to say, there are no coincidences. And that's really what happens, because unconsciously, you're making the choices. Going back to Jung, the future is unconsciously prepared long in advance, and therefore can be guessed by clairvoyance. So in dreams, and I did a lot of work with drawings, past, present, and future are on that piece of paper. Mm. And you can tell what's going to happen to people, where they're going. Uh, One more story. I have her picture hanging in my house. A four-year-old with cancer. And Mm. she drew a picture in the hospital. At the top was a purple balloon draped in black with a lot of colorful dots all around it, and a candle over on the side. And I Mm -hmm. said to her mother, she's ready to go. Purple's a spiritual color. She's ready to go out of the picture. I said, I don't know what all the colorful dots are about. Mm -hmm. And then at the bottom of the page, she drew some child crying in yellow and green. I said, Uh I don't understand this. So I said to her, because those are healthy colors, what's this? That's not me. That's the girl in the next room crying. See, that's what's so fascinating. She she knows intuitively what the right colors are because the other kid is not dying. But anyway, uh, Patty took uh, Amber home, and she called me a couple of weeks later. She said, Bernie, today is my birthday. Amber woke up said, Mom, I'm dying today to free you from all the trouble. Mm. And when we counted the dots, oh. colorful dots, those were the days of her life that were left to her. And that's the part that makes me know the truth, if you know what I mean. Yes, I do. Bernie, I just have to say we love you. (laughs) Thank you. And we wish you uh, tremendous comfort through these times. And thank you so much for the comfort that you have given us because you are an amazing angel on this earth that walks in a very human sort of way. And we're sorry you've had a human experience Mm. of tremendous loss of someone that you've loved so much for so long. 
Yeah, we could talk about that relationship because my wife and I were complete. We really understood yeah. the relationship, and we were like one person. So uh, we didn't need anything. I always say we could sit home, and we didn't think about where should we go, where should we have dinner, what to – we didn't need to do anything. We had everything right there sitting next to each other. And, mm-hmm. and I had one of the, you know – Best, I would say, uh, most loving relationships and marriage with my wife. Wow. And I will, I will close with this, though. Once some women asked her, what's it like to be married to him? And she said, it's a struggle. <laughs> and they all turned and looked at me. But you see, she and I understood what Campbell said, that marriage is an ordeal. You're creating a relationship. And that's mm-hmm. what the two of us did. Mm-hmm. So it was hard to be apart. Yes. You know? Yeah, we should talk about that in a future show, relationships. When you're All ready. Right, dear. You okay. take care. <laughs> Much Bless love. You. Bye-bye. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for, for joining us with Dr. Bernie Siegel. We'll let him pass on as we close. And please do not at any given moment think that your life is less valuable because of whatever. And do not give yourself less love than someone else. And know that your love heals for yourself and others through the difficult times and through the easy times. So be brave. Be courageous. Hang in there. And you never know what adventure might be waiting you behind the next turn. So with that as a closing, we thank again Dr. Bernie Siegel for joining us. And wish you all the very best. Bless you. Thank you. Thank you.